by a show of hands, who doesn't struggle with humility? All right, there's a, it looks like me, Kevin, and, uh, and Corey, we're good. Um, we have it all figured out. Um, I'm glad you didn't fall for that. That was a joke, obviously, just making sure. Uh, let's, uh, let's start with prayer and uh, just open our hearts to God. Thank you for this morning, God. Thank you for your word and your truth. May we hear it uh, today, uh, each of us in our own context, but also in this community. Uh, Lord, that we would find ways uh, in our hearts and our minds and our souls, uh, Lord, that we would see ways in which pride has crept in, that we would see where we have perhaps wandered in our own life, and you would call us back to you. And so help us, God, this morning to see our own brokenness, our own sin, our own pride. And also, God, help us to extend the forgiveness that you've given us, to extend it to others. Lord, you call us to you, and you're calling our neighbors to you. And so help us to not stand in the way, but to draw people to you. Point them to the hope of heaven, the hope of a life with you. And thank you for Jesus Christ who has made this possible. Through his loving and giving life, of pouring his life out for us. We want to hear from you today, God. And so we just ask that you would speak through your word as you've promised. That your spirit would speak to us now. That you would lead us in the way of everlasting life. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. In our Bibles, we'll be in Matthew 18. I'll begin reading at the opening, and we'll just see where I stop. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child to him and placed the child among them, and he said, Truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, who take, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, and whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. What are the sort of key ingredients to having genuine, life-giving community? What does it look like for us to be the kingdom community that we are called to be? I think that we need to have that sort of reminder sometimes, don't we, that we are actually called towards a community of life together. Uh, when I look at our sort of lives and, and the way uh, things have sort of progressed over the last several years is that there is an increase in the sense of the individual, and there is a decrease in the sense of our communal sort of life together. That as we have gone uh, into our own sort of separate silos, we, we go to our houses and we just sort of, uh, the neighborliness uh, is sort of going away. We don't know our neighbors, we don't know people in our life as well. It can seem very uh, sort of hyper-individualized. And so just sort of asking the question from the very onset is just sort of assuming something that may not actually be there. But we are called to a life together, that we are to live life in community, caring for one another, and living, uh, living as one as we point to Christ. That we actually, and, and fundamentally, I think this is something that we kind of lose, that fundamentally we together point people to Jesus better than we can individually. It is our lives together together 
that point people to Jesus and his kingdom. It is not just going to be you and Jesus in heaven. There's going to be other people there. I know. Surprise, surprise. Um, you know, but there'll be a, there's jokes there and I'm just, I gotta stay focused, right? I was gonna make a denominational joke, but nobody would appreciate that except for me, maybe. Uh, actually, there is a good joke. Uh, so, uh, forget staying focused, right? So, the, uh, so, um, somebody died and went to heaven and Peter started showing him around heaven and, uh, he said, you know, like, here's, yeah, here's the slip and slide. You know, that's what I imagine, right? And here's all the fun things you get to do. And here's the great banquet hall, and everybody's having fun. And, and uh, everybody's talking about it. It's like, you know, so Peter's giving them the tour of heaven. And he quieted everyone and said, shh, you have to be really quiet while we pass here. And, and uh, he said, well, why, why do we have to be quiet when we pass here? And he said, well, that's where all the Church of Christ people are. They don't think anybody else is here. Um. You can throw whatever one you want to in the joke. I decided to throw us under the bus. But, uh, uh, but there are going to be so many people in heaven. A new creation. That's God's heart. God's heart is that all people will be saved. But when we reduce our lives down to sort of this hyper-individualized sense that it's just about me and God, and my relationship with him, I think we get this sense that it's just this individual basis. And that is entirely not what's going on in our text today. Our text is a call to a life together. That's this community called the church. It only gets mentioned a couple of times from Jesus' mouth, but it's in this passage. Once when Jesus tells Peter that my church, won't, uh, or my church will be founded on this confession, that the gates of Hades won't prevail against it. And here, in our chapter 18 this morning, Matthew 18, where Jesus will talk to us about what it means to be this community. And so I'll ask the question again, what does it take for there to be kingdom community in our local context? I can think of all the things that sort of uh, rail against it, the things that sort of divide it, the problems that end up happening, I can think of a whole host of things. Uh, our proclivity to always be right. It's really hard to have community with people who always think they're right on every subject. Do um, you know what I mean? When it's hard to get along with someone who's always right, and they can't ever be wrong. We know those people. I'd like everyone to just point at them now. No. Right, that sense that you can't ever be wrong, it sort of fights community because there can't ever be agreeableness, there can't be the meeting of minds. It closely related to it is pride. The sort of always needing to be right, but then the pride, the pride is, is that I can never be wrong, I can never be found in the wrong. When I think about what sort of separates communities, it's this, I always have to be right and everybody else is wrong or I'm never wrong and that sort of just starts pulling at relationships and creates a lot of tension. We can think of other things that uh, disrupt community. There's dishonesty. Where there's distrust, you can't be open and honest with one another. It tears, tears relationships apart. I already mentioned individualism but then also a sort of sense of power and control. 
that uh, it's always this sort of grasping for power and influence and all of these sorts of things. When it becomes about community, it becomes about who's in charge and who gets to carry out their will and gets what they want. And everyone else is sort of uh, left to the breadcrumbs of decisions and, and all that and gets the lesser side of things. Community is torn apart by people who are filled with pride, dishonest, individualism, seeking power and control. And we get almost all of that, in a sense, in this very opening part of chapter 18, when Jesus is with his disciples and they ask this question, who gets to be the boss? Who gets to be the person in power? Who gets to be the greatest? Jesus has just told his disciples over and over and over again, hey guys, I'm going to die. And they're thinking, all right, there's a leadership vacuum here. I'm going to step in. Surely he will pick me. I will be the guy. I will be in charge. And then everyone will do my bidding. And then they do a maniacal laugh, you know, maniacal laugh, you know, from uh, the Muppets. Great movie. Anyways, sidetracked again, but we're still on track here. Everyone needs an extra hour of sleep, and that's why. But uh, all right. So there's this sense of what the disciples are chasing after is the same thing that we have seen wreak havoc on community all of our lives. They're saying, who gets to be in control? Who gets to be the power brokers? Who gets to be the people of most influence? Who gets to get their way? And Jesus is going to say to them, my community is not going to be formed the way you think communities are formed. Powerful leaders creating unity and trying to influence power and control over a set group of people. That's not how my community is going to be working. Let me tell you how it's going to work. And Jesus, he throws all of their concepts sort of away. And he says to them, the way that you become great in my kingdom community, the way you become great is by becoming the least. And it's those who humble themselves and become like little children who get to enter the kingdom. And they're the greatest in my kingdom. And we think, oh, become like the sweet little innocent children. And aren't they precious and sweet? And there's a kid nearby, squeeze their cheeks and say how cute they are, right? No, it, he's not calling us to childlike innocence. He's calling us to childlike humility. The humility of a child in the ancient world they, uh, you know, children didn't dictate their parents' schedules in the ancient world. They dictate ours. Uh, you know, I'm going to be a soccer coach this year, and I'm already thinking about how much my children are dictating my schedule and how much I hate it. But um, wait, I, I, I might be being too honest uh, in this moment. But uh, but our our children in the ancient world they didn't dictate the schedules. They were sort of they got the breadcrumbs they got the lease they were they were sort of cast aside they weren't in some ways they were denigrated to the point where they were barely people they had the lowest place in society and so jesus he doesn't invite them to childlike innocence he calls the disciples to childlike humility to take a humble place that those who are greatest in the kingdom are those who lay their lives down. It's those who are not seeking power and control and influence and pride and arrogance and all of those things that sort of weigh in our mind where we deserve what, the very best. Now, every day is a day for us to pursue what we want and our desires and our hopes and our dreams. And, and Jesus says, 
It's not about finding all of those things. It's about laying your life down. It's about finding the low place. My kingdom community is formed in humility. And he says there's going to be a lot of things that stand in the way of this. And he starts rebuking those that would start standing in the way of people laying down their lives and becoming like children. He says in verse 6, if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. I think it's an invitation not just to uh, think about disrupting children coming to faith, but everyone who would lay down their lives to come and pursue Christ, if whoever it is who these little ones are, it could be all of us, if we would prevent people from coming to see Christ. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed and crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. When we look at this text and we think, oh boy, this is something, <laughs> right? Jesus is laying it all out there. And I just, when I look at um, Christian leadership, I heard uh, Aaron Brockett at a conference several years ago say that Christian leadership is getting all stumbling blocks out of the way of people getting to Jesus. It's getting everything out of the way so that people can come to Christ. And when I think about this kingdom community that God is calling people to, when I think about the humility that is called for and asked of each and every one of us to enter into life in this, I start reflecting on my own life. Has my own individualism, my own sort of self-pursuits of what makes me happy, is it a stumbling block to others coming to Christ? Does my incessant need to be liked and right, does that prevent people from coming to Christ? What are the stumbling blocks that I'm laying out that are keeping community from being formed and centered around Christ? Do I have a heart for the lost? Am I willing to lay down my will and my desires and my pursuits and my power and my control, my need to be right? Am I laying all of those things down so that I can reflect the kingdom community that Christ is calling all people to. It's called, I think in my mind, humble hospitality. God's community, it becomes like a child. It enters into childlike humility and lowness, and it also welcomes all people to come. It is an uh, ever-welcoming community. And as I look at this text and I, I just reflect on it, and I think we cannot reflect the kingdom community if we are merciless and prideful. If there is no mercy for people, then we've created stumbling blocks for them to come and belong. If we are prideful, we've created stumbling blocks for people to come. And we need to cut it off. And we need to throw it away. The thing that is harming people is our pride. What stands in the way of people coming to Christ is our pridefulness, our need to be right, our dishonesty, our desire for control. We lay it down. The kingdom community is a forgiving and humble community. We're called the humble hospitality. 
we all are also called to have pastoral hearts. As we look at the parable of the wandering sheep, in verse 10, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that their, angel, their, their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. I've looked at this passage right here. Maybe there's guardian angels, maybe there's not. I don't know. I've looked at it for a while. But if you say there's guardian angels, here's your proof text for you. Um, anyways, moving on. That's a sidebar from my sermon and it's obviously a distracting morning. So anyways, what do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly, I tell you, he, he is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. The parable of the wandering sheep is an encouragement for us to share in the pastoral heart of God. There is the sort of things that we need to deal with within our own community to think, am I a humble and hospitable person? Am I, am I forgiving and humble? But then there is also the pastoral heart. The story is that sort of reminder, and we're familiar with the parable of the 99 sheep and one who's lost and the shepherd who goes out and cares for that one lost sheep. It is a call to the church to be the same sort of people that God is. That God cares for that one who's wandered away. It cares about each and every person. That we as a community are not the same without you. You belong and we desire you, you to be here and part of our church family. Not just so we can count nickels and noses but that we could be what we are called to be together as the body of Christ, that we are better together and a better reflection of what the kingdom is when we have everyone belonging and connecting and being encouraged in their faith. That when some leave, and I'm not talking about wandering to other churches, I'm talking about wandering from God, that they would be called back to God and know that there is a life with Him, that there is hope for them every one of us has wandered yet we find our ways back to god because people matter and because someone has prayed for you encouraged you forgiven you given you a hope to say you know i do belong we must have always a pastoral heart for those who are wandering from god and call them back to him everyone gets a second third and 20th chance Jesus actually has to address this. He says, if your brother or sister sins, against, uh, sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Is it possible Jesus is telling us how to go and find the lost sheep? The one who's wandering from the faith, Jesus is saying, go and find them and talk to them. And if they keep wandering away, then, well, we got to go next steps. And if they keep wandering away, we got to go next steps. But we keep pursuing and we keep loving and we keep drawing people to unity in the community of Christ. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen, even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or tax collector. 
Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. Again, truly, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. In my experience, if you do step one well, the following steps are rarely needed. But if you would just go and have conversations with people who are wandering away from their faith, that they are willing to come back to a God who loves them. I want to highlight a couple of things from that, but I want to tell this last story. Peter, upon hearing the forgiveness factor, Peter says, uh, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times. And Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times, or it might be 70 times seven. Either way, Jesus is like quadruple, or like doubling down big time and saying, we are to be a ever-forgiving people. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. It was a lot of money uh, back then. It's still a lot of money now. An unimaginable sum. And he says, since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell to his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him. He canceled the debt, and he let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. Paled in comparison to the debt that he owed, he grabbed this man, and he began to choke him. And he said, pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees. He begged him. He said, be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and he had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw that uh, what had happened, they were outraged. And he went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as he had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. We are called, I believe, to be a kingdom community through humility and forgiveness. That if we are going to be the people, be the community that God calls us to be, to reflect his kingdom in this world, we are called to be people who are both humble and forgiving. People who don't have an incessant need to always be right, but a group of people who understand that their only rightness is found before God. That the only thing right about me is that Jesus is in me. That Jesus has forgiven me, that he's given me life and hope and mercy. And it's an understanding of that, that the only thing that's right in me is Jesus, is also an understanding that that's the only right thing about you. And that when we wander from that and we reject that and we find our own way, I want you to know that the only way back is Jesus. I want you to, to know that the only way forward for us is forgiveness. Jesus says there is a way to handle this. And there will be people who wander. In fact, all of us will be one in, amidst the 99. 
All of us will have moments where we doubt God or we wander from God or we question our faith or we question our allegiances to him. But there has always got to be someone who says, I love him too much. I love her too much to let her go that way. So I will tell them. I will tell them that Jesus forgives you and he loves you and you've got to come back. And the question I have, though, is sometimes when I think about my life, is my need for being right getting in the way? Is that a stumbling block? Is my need for individual freedoms? Is my need for control? Is my need for power? Is it a stumbling block still to me today for becoming the little one God is calling me to be? Is my incessant need to be right keeping me from hearing how I might be wrong? You know, the first step would be handled if I have ears to hear. But it goes to the second step when you refuse to hear the person who's concerned about you. Does that make sense? When your ears are closed off to hearing anything from anybody that might care about you, well, then the second step comes, and then the third step, and then it just makes it even worse to the point where there's nothing wrong about me. It's you. And we can, go, we can do that. We've seen it play out numerous times on social circles and our families. We see it play out all the time. And it just doubles down the importance of humility and forgiveness. That if I enter into this kingdom with a humble heart, I realize that I'm in need of Jesus every day. And if I'm in need of him, my heart is open to him. We have to have pastoral hearts, seeking others. We have to be a part of this ministry of reconciliation. Listening. If I have to be right, will I ever hear when I am wrong? Jesus, he lays out the process for us. He encourages us to go and do. Humility and forgiveness are critical to having this life-giving community. And the story about forgiveness, it's a story of one man's great sin being forgiven and an unwillingness to forgive it in others. You know, if we get down to it, this is pretty much the whole thing, isn't it? Forgiveness? That's it. Did Jesus die for everyone? Did he die for you? Did he die for your neighbor? Did he die for the person that you absolutely can't stand? And on the count of three, let's say it. This is it. And if we're honest with ourselves, there are people that we need to forgive. There's a phone call to be made this afternoon. There's a coffee to be had this week. There's a word of encouragement to be shared. Uh, I saw something amazing yesterday. Many of you joined with me in this. Um, I, yesterday at the regional championship game, uh, there was uh, the Triton Trojans, uh, and there was the 21st century Gary uh, school that 
joined together in an epic battle of epic proportions. Uh, really, it's just a trophy. Uh, uh, but there was a special moment before the game. Uh, the cheerleaders for uh, our team and uh, cheerleaders for Gary, they joined together. And they came together at the center line and uh, they um, joined together for the national anthem. Uh, as you might imagine, uh, Triton is mostly a white school, predominantly white, 98% probably. And Gary is probably 98% black. Yet uh, here was a lineup of kids all unified together. And they were the, some of the most encouraging and special kids I've come across. And um, they were one. In a world that is filled a world that is filled with hate, teaching us to be divided over all of these things. There was a shining light example on center stage. And here's my challenge. Why is it the kids are teaching us? Shouldn't it be the church? That's what God has called us to be. He's called us to be the unifiers. He's called us to be the reconcilers. He's called us to be the forgivers. He's called us to be humble. And that's what brought those young people to the line, was humility. It wasn't this incessant need to be right. It wasn't this sense of pride and ego and control. It was, let's point people towards unity. That we're much bigger together than we are apart. And the world and its message and all of the hatred and all of the just evil that is spewed and all of the darkness. God has called a community to reflect different ages, to reflect different cultures, to reflect different races. He's called us all to be one. And that takes humility and it takes forgiveness. There are ways in which I have failed in every aspect of that. We all have. But every day is an opportunity to say, I want this community to be what God has called it to be. And to do that, well, it means that Jordan stops trying to be the greatest and he tried to be the least lay my life down and become one of the little ones. Will you become one of the little ones in the kingdom of God? Will you forgive? Will you humble yourself and seek the Lord? Will you have ears to hear Jesus calling you today? Let's pray. God, we love you so much. Thank you for your love for us. And we praise you for uh, the unity that we can have and the unity that we do have together. We pray, Lord, that our hearts now would be stirred to think of people that we need to reach out to, people we love, people who matter greatly to you, yet have wandered in their faith. And we pray, God, for an opportunity this week that we might have just the simplest and kindest word of encouragement to tell them, just how much you love them. And God, we don't come at them like we're right and they're wrong. We don't come at them with 
sense of power and manipulation, but we just humbly lay our lives down this week, Lord, to be used by you for your glory and your honor. Lord, that we wouldn't be the stumbling blocks to people coming to you, but we would remove the stumbling blocks, that we would throw them away so that people would come and give their lives to you. Lord, we're excited about Easter and what can happen when people become aware that Jesus died and rose from the dead. God, we're excited about all of the messaging and all of the encouragement, all the churches preaching one unified message in a couple of weeks. And we pray that faith and renewal and reconciliation and unity and forgiveness and humility would abound in your churches. Lord, that we would be communities of your kingdom, reflecting the king, showing kindness and grace and humility, that we would not be merciless and prideful people, but humble and forgiving. Lord, as you call us to carry out this task of seeking those who are wandering, help us to love and care for one another and continue to grow together in faith and humility and love. We praise you and we love you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll stand and respond to the